0: Back third down on the eight, In trouble. Got a block behind him. Gonna throw an a run complete to the 25, to the 30. Lindsey has got 35, 40. Lindsay's got 45, 50. 45, 40. One. Lindsay 25,
1: 20, 50, 10, 5. Lindsay's got, Lindsay's got, Lindsay's got. Lindsay's got. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining us today on the podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to talking about athletes getting paid and so many other fun things. And also joining us on the podcast today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm
0: great. It is Halloween week and I'm very excited about that.
1: And making her podcast debut is one One of our awesome new interns, Peyton Childers, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here.
1: So on this week's show, we are going to stick to sports. Well, that is, we're going to discuss the latest on an effort in state houses across the country, including here in Georgia, to allow college athletes to be paid while they're participating in NCAA sports. Then we're going to check in on the latest regarding carcinogenic chemical emissions from medical sterilization plants in Smyrna and Covington. These are the Sterigenics and BD bard facilities that we've talked about before. We're going to check in on those and the latest action taken by the state that was surprisingly aggressive in regulating these companies. Uh, But before we dive in with that, uh, Luke, I know you wanted to update us on some stuff going on in Athens with Splost and the fact that there are municipal elections next week. What is going on in local government elections that you want to update us on?
3: Yes. Well, if, a, if you guys are like me, you know, November 5th, this upcoming Tuesday... Red Dead Redemption 2 comes on PC and you're very excited. But more importantly, <laughs> there is an election in Georgia and around a lot of uh, places. Uh, you know, Virginia has really big elections and Kentucky has their uh, state elections. But we've got in Georgia municipal elections. And so uh, places like my former home of Athens don't actually have uh, elections uh, for the local government because they're a consolidated government. But what they do have is a state splost. And this is a T splost, which is a uh, transportation and infrastructure. Splost are basically sales tax funded projects. And uh, I just wanted to highlight the Athens splost is like an interesting thing to watch, um, primarily because in 2017, a lot of people thought that the uh, turnout for the Athens Splost was one of the things that helped Jonathan Wallace and Deborah Gonzalez win in those special elections for State House. We don't have any special elections for State House, but. What I found interesting about this splost is it's kind of more controversial than any of the previous ones that I've watched. Uh, there's far more people being willing to saying like we should vote against it. Uh, I still think it's going to pass and probably by a large margin, but uh, just something to like keep your eye on and see uh, what Athens' reaction to, to this splost is. And uh, as uh, Kyle mentioned, there are also municipal elections. So if you're in an incorporated city or any other kind of city that's not a consolidated government, you probably have elections for your uh, local government. So you should uh, you know, go log on to uh, you know, your Georgia My Voter page and figure out if you have an election or not and get out by Tuesday and, and vote.
1: Yeah, friend of the pod, Austin Wagner. He's running for commission in Smyrna. Um, so good luck to Austin in that race. Um, and also on the splos thing, I think I think splos are actually super interesting. Splos stands for Special Purpose Local Option Sales Tax, and these are I think a thing that is relatively unique to Georgia, maybe only Georgia. No, they're states. they're all over the place. They are all over the place. Yeah. You but Georgia uses this.
3: them a lot. Um, splots are actually pretty common in states that don't allow municipalities and localities to to fund local governments through income taxes. Uh, it, it's it's pretty much the only way localities, municipalities, counties can raise money. Uh, besides just hiking up property taxes to an insane amount. And one of the great things for Athens, um, because one of the arguments against the Splost is the fact that it is a regressive tax. The sales tax is pretty much always regressive, unfortunately. But Athens has a lot of visitors. Athens has a ton of people come from out of town for games and for events in general. And so while, yes, it is a regressive tax it's really a great way for us to capture tourism revenue. Um, so on that front, like I, I generally don't like increases to the sales tax, but for Athens, it makes more
1: sense than almost anything else. What I also think these are really interesting because as Georgia's state government has increasingly become allergic to raising revenue on the state level, it feels like more and more of the state's core needs are being met by citizens in local governments choosing to tax themselves. Longtime followers of Georgia politics will remember the 2012 T vote, statewide vote for setting up transportation districts and really in the metro Atlanta area, coming up with a wide ranging solution to traffic woes in the Atlanta area. And that vote failed in spectacular fashion. Um, and really delayed the region in addressing some of its transportation problems. So it's a really interesting policy issue for governments, particularly in a, a more conservative state like ours, in trying to raise the revenue to address their core needs, when you have a politics that dominates, at least at the electoral level, that seems really resistant to raising that revenue. On this show, we've got tons of our own little interest that nobody else is going to care about whether it's the 1980 georgia bulldogs or red dead redemption or Splosts. so thanks for and that's sticking why with you want <laughs> it's
3: like and that's why you listen
1: so with that let's move on to our first topic this week so we are in that magical week where uga students get out of school early on friday to head down to st simon's and prepare for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party it's georgia Wait, florida week y'all good is that
0: for real D- yeah, yeah absolutely U- uga gets out early for that
1: that's Absolutely. That is our fall break. Other schools get like a full week for fall break. So I was actually always annoyed at that when I was there. Isn't this right, Peyton? Are y'all out on Friday?
2: Yeah, definitely. But I don't have class on Friday. So uh-huh.
1: yeah, I, the MPA program doesn't have classes on Friday.
3: So like I'm not benefiting from this at all. And the law school didn't actually let you do it. So, you know, I, I've I've passed my horizon of this being useful for me.
1: Well, in any event, go dogs. Y'all have lots of time to go down to Jacksonville this weekend. And so in that spirit, we wanted to discuss some news that ties together Georgia sports and Georgia politics, and that's the subject of allowing student athletes to be paid. Now, the NCAA is currently in a struggle with the state of California, and other states have the college athletics organization set in its sights over the issue of paying players. The NCAA has resisted reforms like these that would benefit players for years, but it seems that the dam is finally starting to break for states and even some federal lawmakers, including here in Georgia. But let's start with the big question here. What has been at issue in this discussion now and in years past is a real fundamental disagreement on whether or not college athletes who are considered to be amateur athletes, whether or not they should get paid in some form or allowed to, be make, or allowed to make money in some form off of the fact that they play, uh, in a lot of cases, high profile and very technically complicated sports. Um, so Megan, what is your view about whether or not college athletes should be able to be paid?
0: College athletes should definitely be paid, and I think I speak for everyone that's on the podcast at the moment and uh, that you guys agree. Um, quick poll. Is that correct?
1: I Yes.
0: Cool. So – I will just start off with saying that I was a student worker and I got paid by the university on top of scholarships that I had. Now, granted, the scholarships that I had were not directly related to the work that I did for the university. But what I wanted to point out there is that it's not unprecedented for students on scholarship to also be paid by the university. The other thing is that football players make money for the university now. If schools are like perhaps LSU in the sense that they have like an athletic foundation or something that's actually a separate business from the university, you can make cases that perhaps it doesn't directly benefit the university. But we all know that at the end of the day, a school with a football team, especially an SEC school with a football team, just speaking for this group, the university definitely benefits from it. So, with that information, I feel like student athletes should be treated like anyone who's producing work while they're at university. So be that authors, be that artists. These people generally retain copyright of their own work. So, you know, if you as a as a writer in a writing program, you produce a piece of work and you might submit it for a grade, depending on why you submitted that work, most of the time you retain copyright of it, you retain ownership of it, you retain distribution rights of it, It it's completely under your control, and you can then go and make money off of it. Also, the law does protect people's likenesses. So, and and that gets a little bit nuanced, I'm not going to get into that a ton, but with the idea of a football player both producing work for a university and having a a likeness that can be protected... I feel like football players should definitely be paid. Football players also have this unique position with the university where their names and faces and videos of them are being produced in mass quantities and spat out, you know, all over newspapers, all over the internet and bringing in more fame, more publicity, more interest in the university itself. So, that said, their football players are doing are essentially doing PR work for the university, whether they are intending to or not. Universities pay PR people. So that's another case for a football player doing good work for the university that deserves compensation. So with all that said, clearly, I definitely feel that college football players should indeed be paid. There's definitely a case for it.
1: Yeah, so one element of this for student athletes is their likeness and how that can be a valuable product in the marketplace. But what does it mean, Luke, for a player to be able to uh, be compensated for their likeness? And what does likeness even mean?
3: Yeah, so I won't go into the rag of publicity, uh, but uh, that that's basically what this issue is covering. But so the rag of publicity protects people's likeness, which is like how they physically look their voice even so like there's been like Morgan Freeman's been able to sue people because they tried to make someone sound like him and, you know, profit off of it. So those are sort of examples of, of likeness. Uh, So a big example of where this comes in for athletes, uh, two areas, I would say one is endorsements. So this would give them the ability to like, accept a Nike endorsement or, uh, you know, accept a Wheeze endorsement, whatever endorsement someone came Uh, with them with and then the other big one that I'm excited about to you know show my my video gaming biases like this would probably open up the door to bringing back NCAA football like from EA the video game because it's been dead it's been dead for years because of these issues of them trying to figure out how you know they could be selling a game for all this money and the athletes not get any money from it how they previously had tried to solve this issue was just like not naming any of the athletes but this is where it, what's really interesting is they had the like skills similar to the actual players and they argued that that was their likeness and that's basically what killed ncaa uh, well and before. it wasn't
1: it wasn't just skills it was a, a player's look their body type their position their number right. on the field everything about them was sort of generically represented in these games, except for their name.
3: Exactly. And because of that being likeness, and I would strongly argue it was, I think that was a good, you know, good court decisions on that front. Um, now that they are allowed to benefit from that, I think one of the first things that's happening, it's EA, is like on the phone with NCAA right now. and They're like, how can we make millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars with you on making NCAA again? Uh, so like that's, that's the biggest example in my mind uh, that I think uh, all of the players will
1: benefit from.
2: So does Nike, when they put someone's name on their jersey, do they have to ask the player for permission?
1: So I believe for college jerseys, like if you go to the Georgia bookstore, they probably sell like number eleven jerseys for Jake Fromm without his name on them, yeah Could, I think that's still what the way it
3: is. i've what I've seen before on that is like Todd Gurley, for example, you can get a jersey with his name on it uh, that only started to happen after he graduated, right so once you graduate, you make a deal with Nike and make you know millions of dollars and they sell they sell your name, yeah.
1: So Peyton, part of the reason that we are discussing this is there was really the first bold legislative action on this issue came earlier uh, this month in California. So what happened in California?
2: Yeah, so recently in California, they passed legislation, a bill called the Fair Pay to Play Act. This bill will allow for college athletes to receive compensation for their name, image and likeness. What this bill will do is give players the chance to profit from endorsement deals and also have agents.
1: So this California legislation was really the first shot across the bow at the NCAA. And the NCAA tried to contest This bill in the California State House. They tried to enlist California State Universities in opposing the bill. Apparently, their lobbying efforts were really not very effective on this. One of the things they said in trying to oppose the passage of this bill was that they would make up some of their own rules and try to modernize some of their own policies. And so they are starting to make an effort at that. And we will get to that here shortly. But Peyton, how does this tie into what's going on in Georgia? We've got legislation here in Georgia that's going to address the same issue, right?
2: Yeah, we do. So Billy Mitchell, a state representative from Stone Mountain, Georgia, proposed legislation last week similar to the Fair Pay to Play Act in California. This would allow for college athletes to be paid for their likeness, use of their name and image, as well as allow them to hire agents. Mitchell wants this bill to be applicable to both public and private universities, which I think is a little different from that in California. And he also wants to incorporate incorporate a way to protect college athletes from their universities revoking their scholarship eligibility.
1: Yeah, so we've got movement here on this in Georgia, too. You've also seen similar bills pop up in Really, other states that play a big role in college athletics, partially just because they are large states. I think the most interesting one there for me is Florida. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican who was also a a Trump backed Republican down in Florida, he actually came out in support of a bill that lays out a similar policy to California's. We reached out to Governor Brian Kemp in his office to try to get comment from him on State Representative Mitchell's bill here in Georgia. They did say that they do not comment on pending legislation. What's going to be really interesting here, though, is how Governor Kemp positions himself on this bill. He's a guy that's from Athens, big backer of UGA football. Um, he was recently active in the effort to get the field renamed after Vince Dooley. And the University of Georgia, Jerry Moorhead, the president of the University of Georgia, is on a commission for the NCAA in their efforts to sort of remake their own rules around this issue. So I think maybe that is some context for why he might not have stepped forward here, um, in the way that Republican Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida stepped up pretty quickly in support of their bill. But it's really interesting here to look at this in the context of what the NCAA announced today, on Tuesday, the day that we're recording. And they announced that they will begin a process that allows them to set up some rules, touching on the same subjects that were in California's bill. And they basically committed in this framework that they released to supporting players being allowed to get compensated for their name, image and likeness. So for those of you that are fans of the video game, that probably really can happen because the NCAA appears ready to at least give on that point. But they gave on that point, they did not give on some other really key issues in this space. They did not appear open to allowing players to hire agents. They actually had a specific point in their framework that differentiates between opportunities for amateur college athletes and professional athletes. Um, They also made clear that they opposed in their framework compensation for athletics performance or participation. Basically this would be schools paying the players to play the sports. Um, And then they also... Said in their framework, they wanted to reaffirm that student athletes are students first and not employees of the university. This begins to get deep in the weeds here, but this appears that the NCAA continues to support this idea that players should not be considered employees in the university and therefore they have no legal rights around things like forming a union. So they're giving a little bit of ground on allowing players to get paid for endorsements and likeness, but they're not giving on a whole other host of issues that would allow them to make significantly more money, and to sort of change the conception of whether student athletes are simply students of a university, or whether they are employees performing a task critical to the university, like maybe PR professionals, like you mentioned, Megan. What do y'all think of where the NCAA came down on this today, appearing to give a little bit of ground, but not too much?
0: I mean, I'm glad that they gave some ground. That's certainly a step. But as I previously laid out, I believe that student athletes should be compensated by the university. They are employees of the university. The the university greatly benefits from the work that they do. And let's not, let's be real here. Being a professional athlete or an amateur athlete, any kind of athlete, it takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication and a lot of hours. So I don't think it's enough.
1: Well, and I think the key thing there, Megan, is that it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of hours. But by its very nature, it also prohibits students from making money in other ways. So like when I was in college, I did some uh, campaign volunteer work and uh, did class and all that. But I had a lot of hours in my schedule to work at Publix, to make money, to be able to pay the rent, to have a little bit of spending money on the side. If you're a student-athlete, practicing for several hours a day, you don't have that opportunity to go work. And in some cases, I believe you're prohibited from working depending on your situation. Um, But you certainly don't have time to squeeze in a normal job that allows you to make significant money to live on. Um, And so what's been really striking to me in this conversation going back several years was uh, Coach John Calipari, the Kentucky men's basketball coach. He used to tell this story about how his players, he he had to build his team's game plan around the fact that his players would go home at Christmas break when there was a significant break in the season's schedule, and they would lose weight when they were home because they didn't have enough money to put food on the table. And a lot of them came from really tough backgrounds where the, when they went home and they didn't have the university dining hall and they didn't have the amenities that they're provided through their scholarships – They didn't get enough to eat and they were losing weight and it was impacting the game plan for Kentucky basketball. That to me is like a super striking image of what it's like to be a student athlete if you're coming from a tough background already and how the policies that have been in place are not supportive of these athletes as whole people, but just as a product that gets put on the field or out on the court.
0: Exactly. And to expand on that a little bit, not every student-athlete is on scholarship. I know the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about student-athletes is football and the big-name players that have you know full rides and on-campus housing and a full dining hall plan and all that. But there are plenty of student-athletes out there who put in just as much effort and just as much work and are maybe a member of the defensive line and you don't hear their name or maybe their second string so they come in to relieve someone and again you don't really hear their name they're at practice every day and they don't get the same benefits
3: well and the the one point i i'd make too because it hasn't come up yet is you know that's true for all sports but football especially there's a not zero chance that if you're playing football on the college level that you might receive an injury that could injure career or injure ability to walk as a uh, player on an opposing team uh, at a Georgia game happened a couple years back. So, you know, like that fact alone, the fact that this is not a zero risk part-time hobby, like this is a full-time job basically that these athletes are doing in which they could receive life-threatening or life-altering injuries, I think that makes the lack of compensation even more substantially bad. And I'm, you know, again, I'm happy the NCAA is doing anything, uh, but I would like them to go further. And I think we're all in agreement on that. And hopefully this is the beginning and not the end. Um, I think the other positive side of this is that elections matter and that electing a legislature in California that was willing to push this forward. I mean, the NCAA kind of like fell, fell apart pretty quick <laughs> on this. So I kind of feel like, you know, they, they're on the rung a little bit and uh, California might be able to push this further in the direction that needs to go. Um, and I, I think we definitely haven't hit the point yet where, um, programs and smaller programs could uh, lose their ability to compete because of trying to compensate players you know there there's a ways to go before we hit any of those legitimate concerns um, so I'm hoping that you know the, the NCAA keeps an open mind and California uh, you know keeps pushing and other states I mean Georgia should be pushing it too I was happy to see that someone from Georgia did push something but uh, the California one definitely had more uh, ability to go somewhere
0: for sure. And then, you know, another thought to all this, um, another option, perhaps, if the NCAA doesn't want to give completely is to give license to the players themselves to negotiate something that they can agree to. So, you know, if if their sticking point is that they want to be compensated for full time work, then their choice is to come up with a contract that they can agree with the university that they can play under or not. Um, And that also gives the university license to say, okay, well, we can't compensate you or we can't compensate you with that amount, but we will do this instead. Um, You know, I think that that would be at least a good stopgap for now and would allow, you know, that might might actually prevent some of the concerns, you know, that the players wouldn't be able to unionize, but it would allow the players some license to be able to get some compensation for the hard work that they are doing.
2: So, Luke, do you think the NCAA will be able to adjust their rules and regulations by twenty twenty three before the bill in California goes into
1: effect?
3: I, yeah, I mean they, they can change their rules whenever they want. Uh, so, I, on that front, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I have been happy to see how responsible the states have been and not trying to make them do this tomorrow. Uh, but you know, I think. Giving them till 2023 is actually really lenient in my mind. Um, I mean, that's four years. That's, you know, the, the four football seasons, four you know, seasons of all the other sports. So I, I think that's plenty of time for them to adjust. Uh, and, you know, probably it's not a coincidence that four years is like the freshman of today uh, would graduate in four years. So that's that's probably why they picked that amount of time in my mind.
1: Well, and I think that. Actually raises an important point about the legislative efforts that are going on right now. Right now, you see a lot of bipartisan efforts around these bills. Uh, Billy Mitchell says there will be bipartisan support for his bill in Georgia. You got DeSantis supporting one down there in Florida. California, obviously a very blue state, you got states all over the map that are considering action on this. South Carolina considering action as well. But what states are considering right now? is really sidestepping the thorniest issues and the issues that might divide the parties. uh, Because allowing players to get paid for their likeness does not require the schools to pay them, which means there is not money coming out of the bank from schools. But it also doesn't address some of the issues on labor rights, whether or not student-athletes can be considered employees of the university in playing these sports. I think if you tried to go further on this question, you might see the party split. And I think there is a legitimate debate to be had on whether or not student athletes are considered employees, because I think one of the downfalls that you might see if you were to roll these athletes as employees of the university is that then schools, if they were forced to pay them, might want to pay them market wages. So Jake Fromm, Georgia quarterback who may go in the first round of the NFL draft, he might be able to get a nice, healthy contract from the University of Georgia to play football for them. But somebody riding the bench for Georgia's fencing team or any other sport that doesn't bring in a lot of revenue to the university and isn't super popular, isn't really filling the seats. The university may not be interested in paying them at all or may try to pay them minimum wage. You already see some of this division in some professional sports. The WNBA as an organization is actually subsidized by the NBA, and WNBA players have to end their WNBA season in the summer and turn around and go and play overseas, because they don't make very much money to be a WNBA player. And they have to supplement their salary by not spending the offseason training and getting ready for next year, but by going to play. And the WNBA is a professional sport with teams in more than a dozen cities, and a partnership with the NBA, one of the nation's most popular sports. Smaller sports sports not tied to the Olympics or not one of the premier sports like basketball or football or even baseball, they're going to have a really different environment if, that they're operating under. If you're trying to argue that these people, that these athletes are employees and you've got title nine issues there that require universities to provide the same sort of amenities for sports and other opportunities for women as for men. Um, there, I think, is a healthy debate there and some thornier issues that are going to have to be pulled apart. But at this point, the legislative reaction we're seeing is not addressing those issues. All right. So that's kind of where that debate is right now. So we're going to move on to our second topic. But Peyton, I know you got to run. So I just wanted to say thanks so much for joining PeachPod for the first time.
2: Yes, thanks for having me, guys. Have a good one.
1: All right, so let's wrap the show today with a check-in on what's going on with facilities in the state, Uh, two of them that we know by name, Sterigenics in Smyrna, B.D. Bard over in Covington. We've talked about these facilities before over concerns that have gotten a lot of pushback among the public, particularly local communities there, that these facilities are emitting a carcinogenic chemical that is being used in the process of sterilizing medical equipment at these facilities. Luke, I know you've sort of been tuned in here on what the latest is with these facilities, and I'm somewhat aware that the state has taken some pretty significant regulatory action here. So what's been going on with Sterigenics and BD-BARD and what the state's been doing? Right, so
3: the first thing to remember is that there's three different plants and there are three different locations, obviously. So the sterogenics plant is in Cobb County, one of the B D plants is in Covington, and then there is another BD plant that is in Madison. So starting from like the most stake action to the least is the stereogenics plant is actually shut down indefinitely in Cobb County as of a week ago-ish. Um, basically it seems like that, um, you know, from the earlier conversations that once it was made, you know, once the state became aware that there was all these admission leaks and that became public and there's a bunch of controversy, the Kemp administration kind of swooped in and they were like, we're going to take care of this and we're talking with them. We're going to work it out and we have deals and we're working it out. What ended up happening though, is that the sterogenics plant basically, started working on a plan but did not communicate it with the state is what the state claims, and they, like, did a press release and announced that they had this plan, and the the state was like, we have not seen this plan. We We need to see this plan. At the same time, the Cobb County... Uh, government has been working to change them from a like storage facility zoning designation to a chemical processing zone, which is obviously very different uh, and more like the actual plant and a better designation for them. And so... Now, what has effectively happened is that the state does not want to give them license to do anything, and neither does the county. And the state's been far more aggressive towards sterogenics, and seems like they've been, they seem to feel like they've been let on more by them. And so that plant is just shut down completely. uh, And really, it's unclear what is going to be the next step for them. Next is B.E. Covington. This plant is going to be shut down starting uh, today. is Tuesday, so starting Wednesday, the thirtieth, is and will be shut down for a week until November sixth. That one, they came up with a plan on how to, uh, you know, update their plant and lower the emissions. And they said they had lowered emissions in other ways, and we're working on that. The state had still brought them to court. Uh, But rather than continue the court proceedings as they did, they they came to a consent agreement and, you know, agreed that they would submit themselves to a lot of monitoring. They shut down the Covington plant for a while and that, you know, they would stay in constant contact with the state as much as possible. Um, And then the last plant is the Madison plant, which that one just agreed to new rules, but is not actually shut down. So that that's the you know 30,000 foot of what's happening.
1: So Megan, what's your response to what the state did here? It seems like they suddenly got more aggressive on how they regulate these plants.
0: So, I am not really sure what to think of this other than you know, I obviously think that public safety is paramount. And so if the state feels that the plants should be shut down, then absolutely shut them down. The confusion that I have with the sudden steps is related to the fact that they haven't made this move before. But I do agree that with with their current stance that in, you know, in, in an abundance of safety, these plants need to be shut down until better measures can be taken.
1: Well, and I think traditionally what particularly environmental regulators in conservative states will tell you to defend their approach to regulation is that it is more effective to go to a company and try to work with them sort of above board and treat them as an equal partner in getting them to change their practices to protect environmental quality or or make sure that any sort of emissions or anything that they're doing in their business process isn't going to harm public health Um, I think what the state has continued to find here is that the story that they've been told from these companies does not seem to be lining up with now the independent testing that they're doing at the state level or the local level, that these things really aren't matching up, and that that's sort of consistent with the experience that Illinois had specifically with the company Ceregenics. And so it does seem to have prompted some more aggressive action here. It does raise the question of, like, why these companies weren't treated a little more skeptically from the beginning. But I think it is good to see regulators continuing to push on this, even though when we talked about this last time, we did talk about how regulators at EPD were somewhat resistant to the idea that these companies were actually emitting enough chemicals to harm human health. They seem to have gotten past that skepticism and are moving forward more aggressively. And yeah, I think that's definitely a good thing.
3: Yeah, and I to just you know highlight from what I've seen, I think a big part of this is what you just said in the sense that they came to these companies and gave them a real chance to be partners with the state and be very transparent with the state and try to get through this in a way that would not you know, really harm the business at, at, at all. <laughs> you know, it seemed like it was way too lenient, which... Uh, In Cobb County caused a lot of fervor, and I think that is why that plan is just shut down completely, because the people in Cobb County were far more pissed off than the people in Covington or Madison were. Um, If you just, like, look at news stories and, like, read people's reactions, you know, when they're doing the, like, man on the street uh, parts of their articles, like, the people in Cobb are just angry and pissed and scared, whereas the people in covington and madison there are some people who are that way but a lot of them are like well i don't know they you know provide a lot of jobs and they're it's probably fine so like that's a big element but i I really think the huge thing is that the georgia environmental protection folks have started to take a closer look at this and became you know became clear that not only like oh there's actually some pollution here and that's bad but i think the bigger thing is they've taken a closer look and they have found that they the companies have just not been as honest with them as they you know originally thought, and that there's instances of like leaks and accidents and stuff like that that the companies did not disclose, and especially with they seem like they were trying to you know proceed ahead with a plan without talking to the stake about it, and. I think they basically had, you know, a they, they thought their leash was way longer than it actually was, and I don't know if the you know Kemp administration was trying to get a better understanding and try to get uh, more information before they just like brought the hammer down on these companies. Uh, but that that seems to be what effectively has happened is that now that they have a better understanding of what's going on and gave them an opportunity to be above board and then both of them to some extent were not above board, they're being a little more heavy-handed, which is good because (laughs) in situations like this, I mean, that's what you want the state to do. Like you want the state to ensure that things are safe. Uh, That's bare minimum what the state has to do. And so I'm I'm happy to see them moving in a more aggressive direction.
0: That makes a lot of sense. unlike like the development that you explained because that was was my hang-up. I guess I just hadn't really been... Keeping abreast of the situation and knowing that the state had been working so closely with these companies, I knew it had been an issue and I knew it had been discussed, but I guess I didn't quite understand the the fact that the state was really saying, hey, make these changes, make these changes, make these changes, and these companies just didn't.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, or didn't do it the way the state wanted them to, uh, you know, because, I mean, the, the state's been ragging them. I mean, that's one thing, you know, I think it's it's always important to point out because I have a lot of, you know, personal experience meeting people that work for the state of Georgia in these departments, you know, in the environmental protection you know departments and, you know, education folks. And, I mean, just, like... The the front line people who just show up are working the same exact way as if they were in California or in New York or in Alabama. Like they're just they're doing their job and their job is to make sure that people are safe and that uh, these companies aren't doing things they're not supposed to do. So, you know, on on that front, uh, I've always had faith that they were trying, you know, making a good faith effort to. Uh, hold these folks accountable and make sure they're not doing anything that's going to kill a bunch of people or make a bunch of people sick. Um, it's just a question of did they have the leadership from the top that would uh, trust in them that this is a problem and that things need to be done about it. And I, it seems pretty clear that uh, we've reached that point And it's, you know, it's probably a combination of the, you know, goodwill kind of not being followed through on and the fact that Uh, It's pretty obvious that both of these plants had more problems than they were uh, transparently and upfront about at the beginning.
1: So Luke, to wrap this up here, do we know, what is your sense of what we're looking for going forward? Going forward,
3: I think Steregenius is going to be closed for a while, (laughs) and they're going to have to come up with a plan with the state and follow it to the T, and don't try to pull any fast ones. Um, because just like reading the statements from the uh, the government and Kim's administration, like they, they're far more pissed at serogenics. Uh and I think it's pretty much because of the fact that you know they're trying to play some PR games and try to look like they're getting ahead of things, rather than like staying hand in hand with the state uh it's funny too to like see bd try to do the opposite thing because uh you know all of the press talk that they have been doing is like we're working hand in hand with the state we're talking to them we're talking to them daily (laughs) like they're trying to make it very clear like that they want to work with the state closely so i think what will be really interesting is just to see if you know, Biggie's plants stay open or not? Um, because you know, right now they are. Uh, you know, one's closing down for a week to make some renovations, but it should be open. You know, about a week from now. So, uh, I, I I suspect this story is not over, and that this is something that's going to continue to be an issue. The other thing that's interesting though is that probably because of these two plants in Illinois and in Georgia, uh, Sterigenics and some others around the country, the EPA has expressed that they're kind of concerned about these plants and this process in general. And so there very well might be some federal action, uh, focused on, you know, these types of admissions and the plants that do this work. So that's something to kind of like keep on the horizon and keep your eye on because, uh, this, this might just be the beginning of this rather than like the end of it. But again, it, it's unclear at the moment.
1: All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for the week. So Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. It was a blast. And Megan, thank you for joining.
0: Thanks. Happy Halloween, y'all.
1: Happy Halloween. Dogs, go beat those gators this weekend. We will talk to y'all next week.
0: Go
3: dogs. Bye.
1: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.